Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia, and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney. I serve as the Senior Instructor at Institute on the Constitution. And with me this morning on this fine Friday morning is my scholar and gentleman, Phil Duffy, our Constitutional Instructor. And we're in a new series that we began last Friday morning looking at what could we do to alter, change, modify, or maybe even abolish altogether our current form of constitutional government to actually get a government, a civil government, that protects and defends our God-given rights. Because after all, according to the founders of our country, as they clearly laid out in the Declaration of Independence, that is the purpose of human civil government. The only thing it's supposed to be about is protecting and defending our God-given rights, not figuring out whether we can eat certain vitamins or not vitamins or how much water we can flush down our toilet or a host of other crazy things that our civil government currently tyrannically does to us and, by the way, taxes us very heavily to do all of these crazy things. That's not the purpose of government, according to our founders. And so clearly what has happened in America is we have lost our way. Uh, and in the view of our founders, as they say also very clearly in the Declaration of Independence, when a civil government fails to do what its actual job description is, that is protecting and defending God-given rights, we the people have another God-given right. And that God-given right is to alter or to even <laughs> abolish that form of civil government and to create a new civil government that will protect our God-given rights. Now, that's exactly what they were proposing in the Declaration of Independence. They stated 27 things that King George III and his civil government had done to violate their God-given rights, to violate the laws of nature and nature's God. And therefore, they concluded at the end of their argument that they had a God-given right to secede from Great Britain's government and to create a new government on these shores, and then that new government would be designed to protect and defend God-given rights. That was their purpose, and very clearly, we are so far away from that purpose at this juncture in time that we need a major course correction. And that major course correction might mean uh, amending, although I, I don't think that's really the answer. I think it, it involves a, a fundamental change in perspective on the part of the American people as to what the purpose of human civil government is and a return to our founders view in the Declaration of Independence that the only reason we want civil government at all is to protect our God-given rights. We don't want them to give us a health care plan. We don't want them to give us a retirement package. We don't want them to do anything but stay out of our business and allow us to make decisions in our own lives and just stand by, ready to protect us and defend us when anyone seeks to violate our God-given rights. Now, as our founders found out, as they dealt with King George III, that uh, government of King George III wasn't about to let them go free. Why? Because they represented a stream of revenue for the government of Great Britain, a stream of revenue for King George III and all of his court favorites back there uh, in, in, in the palace, you know. And so we are in a similar situation today. Those who would like to be free from the tyranny of Washington, D.C., as well as the tyranny of their own state capital, find that the government who runs those is not willing to let them go. I'm reminded of uh, the book of Exodus in, in the Old Testament. 
Yeah, there God commissioned Moses to go before Pharaoh and command him, let my people go. The people of Israel were slaves to Pharaoh. Their labor was conscripted by Pharaoh, 100% of their labor conscripted by Pharaoh. He had them making bricks and building cities for him and all. And God said, this is wicked. This is unjust. And Pharaoh needs to release these people because slavery is not a civil government's power over people it, because it does the opposite of protecting their God-given rights. Instead, it attacks their God-given right to liberty, their God-given right to property, their God-given right to keep the fruit of their own labors. That's the exact opposite. And Pharaoh, of course, was not very interested in letting uh, the people of Israel go. He had these slaves who were doing work for free, and he wasn't about to forego uh, the benefit that he received as the Pharaoh from their slavery. And so he refused. And God said, okay, you don't like this? Well, I'm going to send one plague and two plagues and three and four. And, you know, by the end of 10 plagues, Pharaoh said, okay, uh, my country is devastated. My cattle are all destroyed. My crops are gone. And and are, we are going to all die if the plagues of this God, the God of Israel, continue against our kingdom here uh, in Egypt. And so he did let the people go. And then, of course, he changed his mind chased after him with his army, and uh, was drowned in the Red Sea by that same God who he defied. And so our founders had that image in mind that tyrants must be dealt with as God dealt with the wicked Pharaoh of Egypt. In fact, when the committee was put together, the committee to form a, a seal, a national seal for uh, these United States, Thomas, um, excuse me, Benjamin Franklin, uh, was part of that uh, committee, and they proposed a, a a picture of Pharaoh being drowned in the Red Sea and his army being drowned in the Red Sea. And basically, the message is: this is how God deals with tyrants like Pharaoh and tyrants like King George the Third. But we're at another juncture in the history of our country today, where we need to have that message clearly communicated to our government: let my people go. We choose liberty. We reject tyranny. The tyranny coming out of Washington, D.C., as well as the tyranny coming out of all the state capitals, and even the tyranny coming out of the medical mafia, and on and on it goes. We reject that tyranny, and we will not live under uh, such tyranny. Well, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts, particularly thoughts uh, regarding the issues connected uh, with federal taxation? Well, we might call this session uh, the role of federal taxation in enforcing involuntary servitude. In the prior session, we discussed the role of limited government, the nature of government, and the reasons why a federal government must be constrained in its accumulation of power. Constraint is a matter of both geography and population size. Our analysis of the Federalist essays made it clear that the founders of the United States, then limited to 13 former British colonies hugging the eastern seaboard of the North American continent, envisioned a continental nation. Although the nation's population size was only a fraction of Britain, population growth rates made it clear that the United States would outdistance Britain in a relatively short time. Of all European political philosophers, the founders were most guided by Francis Montesquieu, who warned them that republics would only preserve liberty over small geographical areas such as the Netherlands or Switzerland. Attempts to govern larger areas would lead to an empire with top-down rule. The founders heeded this advice by recognizing the former colonies as sovereign states 
that participated in a federation, the United States of America. This was a compromise with Montesquieu principle, but the founders were confident it would work as long as the federal as the federal uh, government was granted only limited enumerated powers. For residents of the United States in the 21st century, that confidence has been shattered as they find themselves subject to a federal government that acts as their master instead of their servant. In defense of the founders, they had established a powerful potential check on the tendency of a federation to grow into an empire. They granted in the Constitution of 1787 a funding veto power in the House of Representatives in Article 1, Section 7, which states, All bills for raising revenue shall originate in the House of Representatives, but the Senate may propose or concur with amendments as on other bills. One needs to look at this statement closely to determine its true effect. Legislation can be created that causes the same revenue to be raised over uh, multiple sessions of Congress if no new uh, revenue raising is required, but only how existing federal revenues are to be allocated. That is a matter of appropriation, not revenue raising. Traditionally, the House of Representatives has been granted the power to initiate appropriation bills, but technically the Senate could challenge that power. In any case, it is the power to initiate new revenues that is the essence of the House's power of the purse, because major new federal programs require new sources of revenue for their funding. Note here that the assumption is that the federal government does not have the power to create money out of thin air, the idea of money inflation makes sense to bypass that discussion uh, until a later date so that in order to focus on the legitimate power granted in the House of Representatives. At any point in time, one party is in power and the other in opposition. We've been conditioned to believe that one party favors the centralization of power in a national government, while the other favors decentralized government in the states with the federal government being granted only limited enumerated powers. That is a myth, however, as the federal debt extension legislation in the House of Representatives in June 2023 has emphasized so-called compromise allowed the debt to expand with no significant expenditure cuts and only the prospect of holding down that debt expansion in the future. The compromise bill was promoted by the Speaker of the House, who theoretically represented the opposition to those in power. Yet in practice, he was attempting to further augment the powers of the federal government. He was joined by 148 members of his own party in passing the debt limit suspension bill for another two years. To add insult to the injury of the citizenry, the bill was labeled the Fiscal Responsibility Act of 2023. The passage of this legislation in the House of Representatives makes it clear that the ship of state is a ship of fools. Montesquieu would have derided Americans with, I told you so, the power to check the fiscal insanity certainly exists in Article 1, Section 7 of the Constitution, but was never implemented. It, like the power of impeachment, has produced nothing protecting the citizenry, but political theater instead. Montesquieu had described the spirit in the spirit of laws how governments on a grand scale lose touch with their citizens. Nothing really changes when the form of government transitions from monarchy to a republic. Should the federal government be abandoned as unworkable? Or is it possible that the federal form is correct, but its current implementation, as described in the Constitution, contains structural flaws that must first be removed before the federal form of government 
has the possibility of successfully defending the liberties of the citizenry. We are exploring that later uh, possibility. To do that, it is necessary to consider the relationship between taxation and involuntary servitude. Before looking at the concept of taxation, we should compare that with its historical cousin, tribute. Tribute is defined as payment made periodically by one state or ruler to another, especially as a sign of dependence. That dependence is based upon the conquering nations establishing its own rules or governance over the conquered nation's rules. The conqueror assumes sovereignty over the conquered nation. We should reflect on these terms and relationships as we consider federal taxation. Federal taxation is an imposition of federal power over state sovereignty under the Articles of Confederation preceding the Constitution of 1787. The federal government could not tax either persons or transactions. The Constitution changed that in Article 1, Section 8. The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. But all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. Originally, there was one restriction on this federal taxing power. Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this nation, according to their respective numbers. In other words, as long as the federal government restricted itself to indirect taxation, if it had insufficient revenues, it had to plead its case before the House of Representatives. Only when it agreed, the Senate likewise agreed, and the revenue bill was signed by the President according to Article 1, Section 7, could the federal government present a tax bill to the individual states. It was then up to the states to raise the, um, the revenues from taxpayers, as was described in the individual state constitutions. There were three levels of checks built into the system to protect citizens. The first, the populous states could not just steamroller those states with less population density. They might do that in the House of Representatives, where the populous states would have a voting advantage, but a revenue bill would still need to face review in the Senate where representation was state-based. Should a state's representative in the United States Senate vote against the state's wishes, the state still had the option of refusing to pay its calculated share. But a public opinion, uh, because of public opinion, uh, states were unlikely to do this unless the federal government were seeking funds for projects that were clearly unconstitutional. And third, an individual citizen believing his or her state was unfairly taxing the individual could move to another state. Of course, the cost of moving was significant, so the state still retained a good deal of taxing leverage. Note in this system that there was no federal internal revenue service. To avoid conflict, everybody had a strong incentive to disallow unconstitutional projects by the federal government. The system had major flaws, however. The first was definitional. What was the difference between a direct tax and an indirect tax? Coming out of the Constitutional Convention, the terms were undefined in were undefined period. In a 1796 case, Hilton versus the United States, the Supreme Court found that direct taxes, which are those divided among the states according to their populations, do not include taxes on possession of goods. In 1895, the Supreme Court took another crack at the uh, question in Pollock versus Farmers Loan and Trust Company, in which it deemed that income taxes were direct taxes and thus must be divided among states according to population. However, the 16th Amendment effectively overturned Pollock in 1913. 
the cycle of the government getting an employee's earnings first was completed in the current Tax Payment Act of 1943, a World War II measure that has been with the citizenry ever since. From an economic perspective, the distinction between indirect and direct taxes is silly. Hilton versus the United States established the political principle that your possessions, your wealth, belong to the federal government, which could uh, determine how much of your wealth you would be allowed to retain. Technically, your income was protected from taxation, but the only economic purpose of income is to acquire wealth. Moving toward an income tax only empowered the federal government to acquire a person's wealth earlier. Withholding further empowered the federal government to acquire that wealth earlier. In the final analysis, it must be recognized that the current Constitution requires the citizen to work for the government as much as the government wishes. The citizenry is totally dependent upon the reasonableness of the federal government in the sharing of the wealth thus created. Plenary taxing power by the federal government makes a mockery of the idea of government by the people, of the people, by the people, and for the people. This raises the question of the difference between slavery and involuntary servitude, both officially prohibited by the 13th Amendment. Here's the definitional difference according to Cornell's Legal Information Institute. Slavery is the practice of forced labor and restricted liberty. It is also a regime where one class of people, the slave owners, could force another, the slaves, to work and limit their liberty. The term involuntary servitude includes a condition of servitude induced by means of any scheme, plan, or pattern intended to cause a person to believe that if the person did not enter into or continue in such condition, that person or another person would suffer serious harm or physical restraint. That, those almost sound like synonyms. If anything, involuntary servitude seems to have greater scope for harm to personal liberty. Since mankind is destined to labor in order to survive, in effect, the federal government has implemented a thorough system of involuntary servitude over the entire citizenry. Who benefits from involuntary servitude? The governing class. Why does the governing class require the tax revenues? To acquire wealth for itself without productively working for it. An objection might be raised that members of the ruling class work to produce law regulations and the enforcement of these. True to the extent that this activity results from a constitutional mission. To the extent that these so-called services extend beyond constitutional empowerment, they are less productive than somebody digging a six-foot hole in the ground and immediately filling it up. These services go beyond being worthless. They are seriously counterproductive and damaging of the general welfare of a nation. There's a second flaw in this taxation beyond the legitimate constitutional requirements of a federal government, the opportunity to redistribute wealth. This has always been important to the governing class, which by definition must remain small. By redistributing wealth, the governing class can be made to appear benign in the eyes of those receiving the redistributed wealth. They become the useful idiots in the system when they ignore the reality. Uh, they are receiving stolen goods. As George Bernard Shaw observed, a government which, sales, which steals from Peter to pay Paul can always depend on the support of Paul. The historical record confirms that government, at its best, is only marginally benign. More often, it is horribly oppressive. So let's look at the myth of federal authority. As children, we were conditioned 
to believe that the federal government has authority over the states and their subdivisions. When we explore the truth of that, we learn it is a myth. Jefferson set the foundation for legitimate government in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. At the time these words were written, there was no federal government. Until March of, 1980, uh, of 1781, the war was conducted by the states cooperating with each other in the Second Continental Congress. In March of 1781, that cooperation was formalized in a federated government under the Articles of Confederation. Approximately seven and a half months after, hostilities between Britain and the United States ended with the surrender of the British at Yorktown. Not only the Constitution of 1787 was ratified, um, not until the Constitution of 1787 was ratified did a federal government have the power to tax individual citizens in their transactions. Even with ratification, it was assumed that states would continue to be sovereign. For practical purposes today, the states are no longer sovereign, and they act primarily as subdivisions of the federal government. Let's break from history for a moment to take a breather in literature, specifically Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. The themes of this work have been analyzed by Sparknotes as follows. The major conflict in Frankenstein revolves around Victor's inability to understand that his actions have repercussions. Victor focuses solely on his own goals and fails to see how his actions might impact other individuals. The monster functions as the most stark reminder of how Victor has failed to take responsibility for his actions in defying the laws of nature. The conflict deepens when, having succeeded in discovering the cause of generation and life, Victor becomes obsessed with creating a monster. He does not stop to think about what the experiences of that monster might uh, be like, nor is he fazed by the fact that he ignores his family to pursue his work. The parallel with creation of the Constitution of 1787 is not obvious. We might assume that the framers of the Constitution proceeded from good intentions, while Victor, in Frankenstein, pursued his self-interest obsessively but in granting the newly formed federal government plenary taxing powers and knowing uh, human nature and government, the framers ignored the fact that their actions had foreseeable re repercussions. Today, we are suffering the consequences of those actions. Naive tax reformers have presented many schemes, such as a flat sales tax. These also will have repercussions. None address the fundamental problem that a governing entity like the federal government is, for the most part, a parasite upon the people who created it. There appear to be only two outcomes to this grim situation. The parasite destroys the host, or the host rebels and throws off the parasite. The latter course is precisely what happened in France in 1789, and most people would conclude from this that the citizens of the United States are between a rock and a hard place. That is, they have only two choices. One, perpetual involuntary servitude, or slavery if you prefer, or two, something like the violence of the French Revolution 
in the reign of terror to be followed by an authoritarian like Napoleon? Is there any path toward liberty that bypasses the violence? To answer that question, we should move from the realm of literature to law, since constitutions are considered to be social contracts. Contracts are binding upon the parties if fraud and coercion are absent. Who entered into the social contract that led to the creation of the United States? The states as agents of the people, all very compatible with Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. Should the federal government have a say in the interpretation of that contract? As an artificial entity created by the contract, the federal government should have no say in either the contract's interpretation or who may exit the contract, having fulfilled that party's contractual obligations. Since there is no higher power than the states, excluding the state's obligation to God, the states must work out these matters cooperatively. In a word, the federal government lacks standing in these matters. It is a creature brought to life by the states, and the states may extinguish the social contract if they wish. Of course, this is currently not how the system works. Instead, we have a situation in which the tail is wagging the dog. We have created a monster just as Victor Frankenstein had done. If the federal government can't follow the rules, it will be necessary to extinguish it. The primary rule is that its tax revenue is limited to the powers granted in the Constitution. Unlike today's Constitution, it contains no teeth against those public officials who violate their oaths of office. Offenders of the social contract must face mandatory jail time before a court comprised of representatives of the states. And if all are to enjoy the services of a federal government equally, there can be no such thing as a federal progressive income tax and an internal revenue service to sustain it. <laughs> Amen. Kudos. Yes, indeed. Uh, I like your imagery there of uh, Frankenstein. They created a monster. That monster certainly is out of control. It's eating us out of house and home. It's destroying uh, our wealth, uh, if you happen to have saved money and put it in the bank or in investments or what have you, that is being eaten away by inflation, which is in the control of our federal government. And the social contract, you're absolutely right, Phil, it's broken. And the federal government has broken it. And uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. There needs to be jail time for these criminals at the federal level. I think it's helpful also the imagery that you brought us to realize that taxation and slavery are closely related. I think it's helpful actually to go back in time and, and look at the uh, more primitive form of taxation, which just shows you uh, the reality of what it looked like in the past in many civilizations throughout the history of the world. And uh, one way to look at it is, is the French word corvée. Uh, corvée is spelled C-O-R-V-E-E. -E, and it's a form of unpaid labor free labor or a form of, well, you could say slavery, forced labor. And the government would force you to labor so many days, so many weeks, or maybe even so many months doing whatever the government, the civil government wanted you to do, limited usually to, you know, uh, uh, a number of months or weeks, but not the whole year. So there would be some time where you could, you know, farm your own field and all of that. But the king or the baron down the road or the lord of the manor, whoever it was that was over you in, in the, that system, he could command your labor for a, a fixed number of days, uh, a fixed number of weeks each year. 
And so the civil government was imposing slavery, but not 100% slavery. That is, they didn't take 100% of your labor. They didn't take all 365 days, but they took a significant chunk of those. Now, we don't have a corvée in that the, the civil government literally says, you're going to go work uh, and dig ditches for uh, the government for so many months each year. But actually, uh, it might be more uh, 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 painful and more evident to people the type of slavery we're under if that were the case. Because for the average American family, we know what the federal corvée looks like. Well, actually, no, we got to combine the federal corvée with the state corvée, along with your county corvée. And if you live in a township, the township corvée, add all of those together. And for the average family in America today, Tax Freedom Day doesn't come until about July 4th. <laughs> they spend six months of the year slaving for the civil government. And if it were a literal corvée, they'd have to leave their house and they go do a job that pays them nothing at all, I think it would be a little more obvious and perhaps people would be far more upset and ready to overthrow the wicked tyrants who steal 50% of our labor and what they give us in exchange for that 50% of our labor is not worth at all the, the, the stupid things like you say, that the regulations and the bureaucrats and the, you know, the bean counters and all the people in the federal, state and local governments, they don't offer us anything near worth what they take out of our pockets. But because it's not a corvée, that is, we're not physically forced from our home to go out, dig ditches for the government and, uh, you know, pave roads or whatever it is, because we're not physically doing that, people think we're free. In fact, we're often told this is the freest country in the world. You know, that, that uh, mantras again and again. But if we were to be literally forced physically to be laboring for the government, as we are now forced through taxes to pay for that. So we go to a job that we choose, hopefully, and, you know, a, a job that pays us. But half of that pay is stolen by the government. And most of it's stolen, obviously, even before we get to see it <laughs> with the with the. Uh, uh, it's a system that you uh, spoke of, Phil, where uh, the government craftily decided, hey, we're going to take the money out of your paycheck so you will never even see it. Maybe you won't even think about it at all until it comes around April 15th. And I understand um, when they implemented that there in, in 1934, they did something very, very crafty. It's almost demonic. It's so crafty. What they did is they gave a tax freedom year. That is, nobody was going to have to pay any income tax for a year. But then the following year, it began to come out of your paycheck. <laughs> See how crafty and, and sly these wicked people are. And so people were kind of rejoicing. Hey, we got a tax freedom year. We don't have to pay any taxes this year. And well, next year we'll pay the taxes, but we won't ever see it before it's taken out of our paycheck. Now, one point I would have a, a, a slight disagreement with you, Phil, is on the um, the 16th Amendment. Uh, you said that the 16th Amendment overturned the Pollock case only in part. You see, the taxes that were uh, approved by our Constitution were taxes that were indirect, things like tariffs and so on. But uh, any direct taxes had to be apportioned to the states according to the census. That is, the state would receive the tax bill and the state would determine how they're going to raise that tax revenue from their people. And, the, and then the state would uh, forward the proceeds to the federal government of what that tax bill was. Well, uh, obviously, this is not the way the IRS operates today. They come after us directly right out of our paycheck in most 
uh, cases and they take the money before we ever even get to see it, feel it, or enjoy it. They've taken it from us. That's completely illegitimate, completely un, uh, uh, unconstitutional, including the 16th Amendment, because the 16th Amendment did not essentially change that relationship. Uh, let me cite to you what um, the Supreme Court said uh, after this uh, proposed income tax was supposedly ratified. There's a huge problem with the ratification. Bill Benson's done the research on that and shown that uh, literally the 16th Amendment was not constitutionally ratified by the proper number of states to become the law of our land, and therefore it's not literally part of our Constitution. But that's a whole different discussion and a more lengthy discussion than we have time to, to look at this morning. But uh, when we look at what the 16th Amendment did, here's what the court said, the Supreme Court, uh, in 1916, just three years after after the, supposedly the 16th Amendment was ratified, their opinion in Brushaber v. Union Pacific, and by the way, this is uh, relied upon, this case is relied upon by the IRS as the cornerstone decision that established, they claim, the constitutionality of the income tax. But wait a minute, look at what that Brushaber v. Union Pacific case says. The case actually involved withholding monies accruing to non-resident aliens, that is, people who were not citizens of these United States. And uh, it's explained that the 16th Amendment, that the tax authorized by the amendment, and that I'm quoting from the case here, Brushaber v. Union Pacific, uh, the uh, tax authorized by the amendment must be laid without apportionment. And because the Constitution still requires that all direct taxes must be apportioned among the states, the income tax cannot stand constitutionally as a direct tax, that is, a tax upon citizens. The court stated that the income tax is constitutionally only as an indirect tax in the nature of an excise. So it can tax non-citizens. It can tax uh, residents, aliens, those who are here with a green card and, you know, the privilege of working in the United States, the federal government can tax them for uh, that uh, that privilege. So that's Brashaber v. Union Pacific. Another case, the same year, 1916, the U.S. Supreme Court held in Stanton v. Baltic Mining that the 16th Amendment, and I'm quoting, the 16th Amendment created no new power of taxation. That is, the people who were exempted uh, from direct taxes in the Constitution, which includes all citizens, were exempted after the 16th Amendment was supposedly ratified. And there are other Supreme Court cases. 1918, U.S. Supreme Court decision of Peck and Company v. Lowe uh, states, and I quote, the 16th Amendment does not extend the power of taxation to new or accepted subjects. Neither can the tax be sustained as a tax on the person measured by income. Such a tax would be by nature a capitation rather than an excise. In other words, end quote, in other words, the capitation taxes that are forbidden in Article 1, Section 8 of our Constitution, Clause 4, those capitation taxes and that forbidden capitation taxes still stands regarding citizens. Yes, non-resident aliens can be taxed directly by the federal government, and the IRS would have a function in doing that. Yes, uh, the uh, because they're not citizens, corporations may be taxed directly by the federal government. And that's not a violation of, of the Constitution because we're not talking about actual citizens of the states. But the, the courts have stated, and this is very clear, that these capitation taxes forbidden by Article 1, Section 9, Clause 4, those forbidden are still standing. And nothing in the 16th Amendment repealed or nullified the constitutional limits 
on imposition of direct taxes upon citizens. The federal government is still prohibited from imposing any direct federal taxes on citizens of this country or on their property. It's very clear that the Supreme Court understood in 1916, three years after the supposed ratification, 1918, they understood and they stated in these Supreme Court cases that citizens could not be directly taxed even after the 16th Amendment. It is extremely clear. Compare, for example, the language of the 21st Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which specifically states that the 18th Amendment is nullified. In other words, 18th Amendment is erased by the 21st Amendment. So in order for the language of Article 1, Section 9 to be, as Clause 4, to be nullified by the 16th Amendment, the 16th Amendment would have to have specifically stated and clearly stated that the prohibitions of Article 1, uh, Section 9 were rescinded, just like the 21st Amendment clearly rescinds the 18th Amendment. So the reality is that what the federal government is currently doing is constitutionally illegitimate, illegal. And we ask, well, how in the world did they get away with doing this? How in the world did they get away with lying to the American people as they continue to lie? And by the way, it's not just the IRS that's lying to the American people today. If you present the arguments I've just shared with you, if you present them in a court of law today, you will be thrown out as a in a, a tax fraud. You'll be thrown out as a crazy conspiracy theory and no such thing. Wait, 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 wait a minute. Isn't it true that people always say that, ah, oh, the Supreme Court, you look at a Supreme Court decision and hey, it's the final word on what the Constitution means. And we have it right here, 1916 and 1918. Yeah. Why isn't that precedent accepted in the courts today? You look at the history of what happened with taxation. Most people were willing to go along with the federal government, you know, taxing resident aliens in our country and taxing corporations because oh, those rich corporations, they need to be soaked, soak the rich kind of thing. Uh, they were willing to go along with that because it didn't affect them personally. And most people were not affected at all. And obviously no citizens were affected until the Second World War. And it's interesting, Phil, that the, that withholding happened during uh, 1943, during the midst of uh, Second World War. And the war, as in every war, is an opportunity for tyrants to abuse their power and to persuade the citizens to go along with violations of the law because, oh, hey, we're at war. We got to win against the Nazis and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, the people went along with it. Do your patriotic duty, you know, buy war bonds and pay the income tax because we got to win the war against the the Axis powers and the, you know, the threat of these boogeyman there over in Europe. And so the Americans went along willingly, not only buying war bonds, but paying an income tax that was illegitimate and unconstitutional in order to win the war. Everybody rose up doing their patriotic duty. And so you would expect them at the end of the war, the tax would have ended. <laughs> Anytime wicked people get a hold of a stream of money, they're not about to let that go. And of course, their excuse was, well, yeah, 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 you know, the war's over. But love, well, no, no, we got a cold war. Yeah, yeah the, the buddy, you know, buddy Stalin, the the one who who Roosevelt called his friend, you know, my Joe, Uncle Joe. Oh, you know, now we're at war with him. He was our buddy in World War II, but now we're at war with him. And the Cold War means we got to keep this stream of money flowing. And before you know it, the American people got used to being taxed directly, unconstitutionally, and uh, accepted it and have continued to accept it. And because most Americans believe it's constitutional, most Americans believe the 16th Amendment amended Article 1, Section 9, Clause 4. They've gone along with it. 
and we need to raise up a, a body of citizens who will overthrow this tyranny and end the IRS tyranny over we, uh, the people, the citizens of these 50 United States. Phil, what are, what are your thoughts? Well, number one, I agree completely with your your uh, um, argument about the 16th Amendment and its constitutionality. No, uh, no difference whatsoever. Um, I, I do wish to point out that from an economic perspective, the distinction between an indirect and a uh, direct tax is meaningless. And uh, either is equally painful and uh, either is equally detrimental to the uh, individual's wealth. And I think that what we need to focus on is the, the principle that if you're going to create a federation, a federation is a contract in which the states have entered into on behalf of the citizens. You cannot give that federation independent taxing power, period. Now, Europeans are, are discovering the same thing with European taxes. Uh, the Brits have seen enough and, and they're trying to get out. Um, on the other hand, you know, they're not completely out of it yet. It's very, very difficult to, to extricate yourself. But uh, ac actually, the, the, the issue here is that you pay a, a, a population-based tax, if you will, based upon the numbers of citizens, let us say. Uh, that is what the tax bill ought to be uh, for individual states, and each state should be uh, given its allotment, and that gives the state uh, an option, in effect. I mean, they don't want to use it, but um, it gives them an option if that tax is contains any unconstitutional items. They can say, uh, we don't care if our senator uh, voted for it. We're not paying it. That's the leverage that you need. Um, the second point is you mentioned that we don't have a corvée. And I think that is a correct statement right now. We did have it with the, the military draft. And those who faced frontline military operations during wartime uh, would have preferred slavery. It was less life-threatening. And by the way, the slaves got off um, uh, Sunday. You know, they didn't have to work on Sunday. So, <laughs> yeah, better to be a slave than uh, being drafted. <laughs> Indeed. I, I, not that I'm any, in any defense of slavery at all, but I visited a plantation out of uh, a historic plantation outside of uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, fascinating, we toured the plantation. They showed us, you know, here's the slave cabins. And, you know, they look pretty rugged kind of existence. But thinking of the time period, you know, back in the early 19th century, it's like, well, this is how the average person lived anyway. You know, not, not just slaves, but the average person lived in a rough log cabin. Maybe there was no windows or uh, and so on. But the fascinating thing is the cabins were spaced, uh, you know, part maybe 10 to 15 feet between each cabin. And we were told by the docent there that uh, the owner of the plantation not only allowed them Sundays off, it also allowed them Saturdays off, which was very generous. But uh, they were also allowed to plant a garden, a fruit, a vegetable garden or whatever they choose between the cabins. So they had space of land that was part of the plantation that they could plant their own food on and they could grow their own food and harvest their own food and do with whatever they pleased. And because some of them had a, a, an abundant harvest on Saturdays, they would take their harvest, their fruit, the fruit of their labor, and they would take it to market and they would sell it. That's right. Slaves actually making a profit 
off land that they did not own, but land that was lent, lent to them by their, their master. And some of these slaves actually accumulated, accumulated so much wealth on that plantation that when the plantation owner fell into debt, he borrowed money from his slaves in order to pay his debt, which means he owed his slaves interest on the money he was borrowing from. It's just like, wow, never heard that before about the, the slave system. We just heard all, all the... Anyway, my point is that we have a federal government that's far worse. In fact, I would argue, if you look closely at the language of the 13th Amendment, that language of the 13th Amendment states very clearly that it did not end all slavery. Take a look at it. Don't take my word for it. Read it carefully yourself because it leaves a huge exception there, except someone is convicted of a crime. In other words, the only slavery that was ended by the 13th Amendment was private slavery. That is, a, a, a private master owning slaves privately on his private plantation. Federal slavery, state slavery, county slavery would continue. And in fact, if you, if you look at our numbers in terms of the number of people in prison, in America per capita. We have the highest per capita prison population in the world. That's right. Higher than China, higher than Cuba, higher than any of the communist dictators. No, we have the highest per capita incarceration rate in the world. And the 13th Amendment says all of those people are slaves. And so who's the biggest slave owner in the world today? Our federal, state, and local governments. And uh, yeah, so those are people who are totally slaves. You know, They get paid maybe a penny an hour for any labor they do. Uh, and the rest of us are 50% slaves. That is 50% of our labor is stolen uh, by federal, state, and, and local government. What a deal. What a deal. But I would argue that uh, if we were returning to the understanding of our founders and the checks and balances they establish, the states could stop that federal tyranny of, of taking money out of the paychecks of, of we the people through the IRS. Yeah, I think that's the most fundamental uh, point to, to recognize here. I mean, it's amazing how we've been conditioned over over time. And uh, it's also, I think, interesting that that time period uh, correlates very closely to the creation of public uh, education in the United States, starting with uh, that hero of, of education, the father of public education, horrible man. I'm sorry, Horace Mann. Yeah, as that, that has, it's amazing how the scope of public education has has increased uh, dramatically. Uh, I mean, I, I know when I, I was in uh, uh, grammar in high school, which has to be a couple centuries back now, uh, I, I, I can remember what it was like. I mean, it was reasonably balanced. I mean, there, there was some propaganda, um, you know, which you could recognize now, but you, um, absolutely, it was just amazing by comparison with, with today. I mean, for example, uh, part of our English class was an exploration of uh, uh, Emerson's self-reliance. What? You're either a victim or an oppressor today. You're to be a self-reliant. And then following that was uh, Thoreau's uh, Civil Disobedience, his essay on civil disobedience. And we explored it. You know, what was its, what was its meaning? What was he saying? You know, and uh, was this right? And so forth and so on. And, you know, you had an open discussion of these things. You couldn't even think about having that kind of discussion in many of our public school systems today. <laughs> Indeed. In fact, if you want to add to people's reading lists, your, your contention that really 
uh, the states have the power to interpret the Constitution and to tell the federal government, really, you have no power, which includes the federal courts, no power to interpret the Constitution. It's not your document. You are not a party to the contract. You are a creature, the Frankenstein, so to speak, you know, the monster created by Dr. Frankenstein. You are the creature of the states. You are not the one that determines what that document means. People need to read what Thomas Jefferson wrote and James Madison wrote in what are known as the Kentucky and Virginia Resolves. These were at the uh, close of the 18th century, just the beginning of the 19th century, where uh, the Alien and Sedition Acts had been passed. And uh, those two states, Kentucky and Virginia, said those those, uh, passed by Congress, signed by uh, President Adams, those are not law in the state of Virginia and in the state of Kentucky because those bills are unconstitutional and they go through here's that here's how they're unconstitutional but my my point in having people read the kentucky and virginia resolves is to recognize the principle that you're speaking of that james madison who's usually called the father of our constitution and thomas jefferson third president these understood clearly that the states are the ones that interpret the constitution not the federal government and the federal government has no power to enforce on the state's what the states determine is unconstitutional. So they were both states, Kentucky and Virginia, were saying to the federal government, don't you dare come into our territory and attempt to impose the Alien and Sedition Acts. You will be a criminal if you attempt to do so. And I didn't state the full extent of that, which would be, yeah, you come into our country, into our state and, and attempt to do that. We will arrest you. We will put you in prison because you are a criminal violating uh, the, the laws of the land. So, yes, I strongly encourage people to read those Virginia and Kentucky resolves because we need that thinking in our mind that the states are actually the interpreters of the document, which means the Supreme Court suddenly loses most of its power. Most of its power is that everybody bows down. Says, oh, Supreme Court is the final interpreter of the Constitution. And when they issue their edict from on high of Mount Olympus, well, then we've all got to bow down and do whatever they say. They say Roe v. Wade. Ah, oh, yes, Roe v. Wade, the law of the land, and you know, so on and so forth. No, no, no. That's not the case at all. But we need to reestablish in the thinking of the citizens that the people in the states through their state government are the ones who are to interpret uh, the Constitution and to keep the checks and balances on the federal government to abide by uh, that document. I think that's that's a very important point. Let me read the preamble to the Constitution of 1787, because I believe this is where the, the major flaw uh, is built in at the foundation, philosophically, because, of course, the, uh, uh, the preamble has no, no standing uh, whatsoever. Uh, it's not a part of the legal system. Uh, okay, here, here's the preamble. We, the people of the United States, now, to begin with, the people of the United States really didn't enter into this. It was the states representing the people, okay, uh, in order to form a more perfect union. Well, a more perfect union is an absurdity. You, you can't get more perfect. You're either perfect or you're less perfect, you know, but you can't be more perfect. Perfect is the superlative form of the verb uh, or of the, uh, the word. Um, established justice, okay, difficult to, to do, but nonetheless, Ensure domestic tranquility. Well, to what extent was the federal government responsible for domestic tranquility? The states were responsible for that. Um, provide for the common defense. Okay, 
that's that's one of the major reasons why the the uh, compact was created. Promote the general welfare. What? <laughs> what do you mean by that term? It's it's not defined anywhere. And so Alexander Hamilton opened the door and said, "Well, uh, you know, um, you can read between the lines. You know, uh, those are implied powers." And of course, we've seen where that's been taken. And uh, now people are talking about a guaranteed annual income uh, with uh, uh, all sorts of perks besides. Um, and let me continue here and secure the blessings of liberty. Well, what you've done is to defeat the the, the blessings of liberty with this this compact here, um, and to ourselves and our posterity. Well, you can't bind your pos posterity, so that's wrong. To ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. Okay, um, I would wipe that out completely and put in that one major paragraph that we discussed uh, in this session uh, from the Declaration of Independence. Tie the Declaration of Independence into the Constitution. You need to do that. Oh, amen. Because the principles of the Declaration really are the underlying fundamental principles of our constitutional republic. And that's one of the things that's taken place in the miseducation system, or you might call it the indoctrination system. They've divorced the Constitution from the Declaration. In fact, many uh, states will not even allow their children in the public indoctrination schools to see the Declaration of Independence, because if they see it, it's like, oh, wow, look at these principles. There is a creator God. Our rights come from him and from him alone. And the only purpose of human civil government is to protect and defend those God-given rights. Wow, what a revolutionary idea. And that would dispel the whole myth that has risen up that somehow government uh, can steal from one group of people and give it to another group of people, and that's good for everybody. <laughs> like, no, 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 that's not the purpose at all. And I do, I would, I would agree that really the principles of the Declaration of Independence ought to be the actual preamble to the Constitution. So it is very clear what we are about and what the purpose of government is is to protect and defend our God-given rights. Well, that's the purpose for which we exist here, we the people, the Constitution Matters, to teach these foundational principles, to spread them far and wide. We invite you to check out our podcast at uh, we the people uh, at uh, 1180wfydl.com. Click on podcast and go down the list to the bottom. We the people, many resources. We hope that you will avail yourself and help others uh, understand. Join us next Friday morning at 8 a.m. We the people, the Constitution Matters.